My aim this morning can be divided into three steps, and all three steps are essential, and they are ordered in a very particular way. First, I I aim this morning to convince you of the objective sufficiency of the once-for-all priestly work of Jesus Christ in obtaining eternal redemption for all of His covenant people. I want to convince you of the objective, meaning it doesn't depend on how you feel this morning, sufficiency, meaning that you need nothing else, the objective sufficiency of the priestly work of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago on the cross and in the heavenly sanctuary. I want to convince you of that so that your faith will be grounded in the saving work of Jesus Christ, your great high priest. That's the first thing. Secondly, being convinced of His sufficiency. Being convinced it is is true. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. I can be clean. I pray that the Spirit will make you clean. Whether it be for the first time for some of you, maybe you came to church this morning and and it's just one of the things that you're trying to enable your conscience to not feel so guilty. Or maybe you've been cleansed and you need to be cleansed again because you really screwed up last night. You really messed up this morning. This week, you're ashamed of what's gone on. Or what hasn't gone on. I pray that being reminded of or convinced for the first time of the sufficiency of what Jesus has done outside of yourself. That inside of you, there would be an experience of freedom and joy. Third, being set free from dead works and futile attempts to cleanse your conscience. I hope that you would walk out of the doors this morning, walk out of the worship service free to serve the living God out of just a sense of gratitude and love. Not not as slaves, but as sons, daughters, beloved, clean, adopted, welcomed into the Father's presence. Let me roll through those, through those again in just a slightly different way. First, my purpose is intellectual. I'm not ashamed of that. This is an intellectual passage. I want, I want to convince you of the truth of the New Covenant Gospel. I want you to understand it. It's second of all experiential. I want you to feel it. I want you to experience the joy of a clean conscience. The joy of knowing that your sins are forgiven For Christ's sake. And third, it is practical. I want you to respond out of this joy in acts of service and love to the living God and to His people. That's the flow of today's passage and it's it's seen most clearly in the climax in, in verse 14 which reads like this. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit has offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will His blood 
clean your conscience from dead works that you may serve the living God. And we we can't short-circuit that process this morning. We can't skip over verses verses 1 to 10 or verses 1 to 13 and say, that's a bunch of Old Covenant stuff, that's a bunch of Old Testament stuff, that's a bunch of Leviticus stuff, and I don't understand it. No, because we need roots, we need foundations for our hope and for our joy. If we do that, we would be building our house upon sand, and it wouldn't last. We might be able to derive some momentary sense of joy and some some momentary experience of freedom but when the winds of doubt come in and assail you and you get to like Wednesday and trials have mounted and you wonder where your joy has went it's been swept away because it wasn't founded on the rock we need the rock and that rock is verses 1 through 13 solid joy must be founded upon solid truth living works of service to the living God arise out of living faith which is nourished on deep, robust, theological meat. I want us to be a fruitful people. Serving the living God. Active. Self-giving. Sacrificial. Overflowing. But in order to be a fruitful people, we must first be a free people. So that our our acts of service are not the work of slaves, dead works, you know, done out of a fear of punishment. I've got to do this or else God's going to rain down wrath on me. Or out of a hope of reward. I'm going to do this in order that God may may reward me in some way. Another jewel in the crown, trying trying to earn my way back into his good favor. No, we've got to be free. If we're going to be fruitful, we've got to be free. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I'm clean. I'm free. And now I want to serve him. I want you to be fruitful, but in order to be fruitful, you've got to be free. In order to be free, you've got to be faithful. You've got to know the gospel and be convinced that your freedom is real and that your joy and cleanliness is secure. So we're going to walk through those three steps this morning. First, we're going to build faith. Then I pray we're going to experience freedom. And then we're going to launch you out so you'll be fruitful. And we pray that God would oversee it all by his grace. If I were to summarize the the argument of Hebrews 5 through 10, it would go something like this. I believe you have it at the top of your bulletin. Jesus Christ is the better priest of a better covenant who performs a better ministry in the better tabernacle. Catching a theme word there? Jesus is better. And in the core We're talking about his better ministry of the better covenant of the better priest and the better tabernacle. In chapters 5 and 7, the author argued for the superior priesthood of Jesus by pointing to his superior qualifications. His righteousness that enabled him to, to offer the perfect sacrifice, namely the sacrifice of himself. And his resurrection, which enables him to intercede for us always before the throne of grace. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for us, as Hebrews 7.22. In chapter 8 last week, the author focused upon the better promises of the new covenant which is superior to the old 
in that it promises a, a real transformation through the regenerating work of the Spirit and a real justification through the atoning work of the Son. Finally, now in chapters 9 and 10, the author is going to unpack the last two portions of that summary, the better ministry in the better tabernacle. See, at the beginning of of Hebrews chapter 8, the author introduced a topic that, that now is going to become very important to his overall argument, which is the correspondence between the earthly sanctuary and the heavenly sanctuary. The copy and the reality, the shadow and the substance. In Hebrews 8.2, if you look back there with me, he said that Jesus is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. A couple verses later, in verse 5, he stated that the, the priests of the old covenant, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things which God instructed that Moses should make after the pattern that he had been shown on Mount Sinai. Well, now, in Hebrews chapter 9, the author picks up that line of argument again, and he's going to use it in order to display the supremacy of the new covenant priesthood of Jesus because it takes place not in the earthly tabernacle, but in the true one, which is above. All right, the first thing that he does in this chapter, verses 1 through 5, He reminds his readers, who would have been familiar with this, this is just a reminder for them because they are Hebrew, they are Jewish, but he reminds them of the structure, the outlay of the Old Covenant tabernacle. So we read this. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. All right, so by his own admission, he's just giving us a very cursory, surface level description of the Old Covenant tabernacle. All right, but seeing how that ter- tabernacle is much further removed and much less familiar to us than it was to them, I want to take just a moment, I want to walk you through it. Okay, maybe you've taken some time and studied the tabernacle before, maybe in a book, maybe in a Bible study, maybe you have absolutely no experience with this whatsoever. That's okay. But I want to take just a moment, I want to. I want to picture it for you, and I think we'll be aided by some images that will be coming up on the screen. All right, the Old Covenant Tabernacle, which was the earthly sanctuary, was comprised of three main areas. All right, first, there was the outer court of the tabernacle. Now, this was an area 150 feet by 75 feet, and it was surrounded on all sides by a seven and a half foot tall curtain. Inside the court of the tabernacle, there were two main articles. First was the bronze altar, which was the altar of sacrifice. Next was the bronze laver, which is where the priests would ceremonially cleanse themselves before they would enter into the actual sanctuary. All right, so the first, you have the court of the tabernacle, you have the bronze altar, you have the bronze laver. Then comes the second. You have the tabernacle proper, 
which was a tent in the courtyard that had two rooms separated by an enormous veil. The first room was called the holy place. And as you entered the holy place, on your left, there would be a golden lampstand. You see it up there with three candles on the left, three candles on the right, and, and a candle in the center. It's a, it's a menorah, golden lampstand on the left. On your right, you would have the golden table of showbread, okay, the bread of the presence, which symbolized the fellowship of God with his peoples. There would be 12 loaves that were changed on a weekly basis and set on this that, that demonstrated God has fellowship with his 12 tribes, with his people, table fellowship. And then there at the center, right before the veil, was a golden altar of incense, which burned morning and evening every day of the year. But then there was a third compartment behind this veil in the tabernacle, and this third compartment was called the Holy of Holies, or maybe your Bible has most holy place. There was only one item inside the Holy of Holies, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a rectangular chest overlaid inside and out with gold, pure gold. And inside the ark, according to our author, were three items. A golden jar holding manna. Aaron's rod that miraculously budded as a sign to the people of his authority. And the tablets of stone which were inscribed by the finger of God with the terms of the covenant. Now, resting atop the ark was a lid, which fit perfectly upon the ark, and the lid was also covered, top and bottom, all around with pure gold. This lid was known as the mercy seat. Now, of one piece with the lid were two cherubim with their wings stretched out towards one another. They were facing one another, and they overshadowed the mercy seat. And it was there, before the ark of the covenant... Between the cherubim, that according to Exodus 25, 22, from above the mercy seat, that the Shekinah glory of the Lord appeared. This was the throne of grace, where the Lord God the Almighty sat enthroned behind the veil within the tabernacle in the midst of the congregation of Israel. Now, Just as an aside, there is a slight problem that we run into when we hit verse 3, which is that the author seems to place the golden altar of incense inside the Holy of Holies when the Old Testament places it outside the Holy of Holies right before the veil. What are we to make of this? Did the author make a mistake? Did he mess up? Did he not remember rightly? What gives? Well, there's been much written about this apparent discrepancy. I'll spare you the detailed history of interpretation. But if that raised in your mind a question when we got to verse 3, let me just briefly say two things. Number one, the author is a Hebrew and you're not. Furthermore, he is a first century Hebrew and you're a Gentile living 2,000 years further away from the tabernacle. And everything that we know about him up to this point displays that he is a veritable expert in the law of the Old Covenant, in the worship and the rituals of the Old Covenant tabernacle, which ought to tell us that he's probably not going to make such an elementary mistake that you and I picked up on when we were reading Hebrews 9.3. So we would do well to honor him, not to mention the divine author, 
by not assuming error, but rather giving him the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps he knows what he is doing, and perhaps he's doing something important. Which brings me to point number two. I think it's possible, maybe even probable, that the author is thinking ge- or theologically instead of geographically. What do I mean by that? In Jewish thought, the golden altar of incense was connected more with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat than it was with the other two items in the holy place, the table of the presence and the golden lampstand. The incense represents the prayers of the saints that are ascending before the throne. And even though a veil separated the altar of incense, the prayers from the throne of grace, the presence in the earthly sanctuary, in the heavenly sanctuary, there is no such veil. Which is why when Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord, he doesn't see a veil. He sees the Lord seated upon his throne and the train of his robe fills the temple. And there is an altar before it from which comes a coal that cleanses his lips. There's no veil. There's the altar and there's the throne. You see the same thing at work in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3. So this connection between the altar of incense and the mercy seat is stronger than the connection between the altar and the other articles inside the tabernacle. And I think that's why the author places them together and separates them from the rest in Hebrews chapter 9. And when you take into consideration that the main focus of this passage is on the Day of Atonement, I think his line of reasoning becomes even clearer. Because on the Day of Atonement, the priest is taking the sacrifice and the blood from the bronze altar, and he's walking right up to the golden altar of incense, and he's taking a fire pan, and he's getting coals, and then he's going within the veil, and he's going to the Ark of the Covenant, and he's sprinkling incense on the coal, and he's sprinkling the mercy seat. And so there's this connection between the altar where the sacrifice was slain, the altar where the incense and the prayers ascend, and the ark, which is the the mercy seat. They form this straight line, which is showing the way of reconciliation for unholy sinners to a holy God. It's teaching a lesson. And I think that's in the mind of the author when he puts the altar of incense inside the Holy of Holies. Theologically, even though not geographically, they belonged together. Now, there was a purpose to both the structure of the Old Covenant and the priestly ministry that took place inside it. The tabernacle, the priesthood, and the rituals formed a vivid object lesson for the people of God. In other words, if you were an Israelite living under the Old Covenant, there was lessons to be learned. You You were to learn something as you watched what went on in the Old Covenant tabernacle. These things signified certain truths about God, about sin, and about redemption. And it's the significance that the author points to in verses 6 through 10. Look at the first two of those verses. Verse 6. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and then for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Now, verse 7 makes plain that the author has one particular ritual in mind, and that's the ritual that took place on the Day of Atonement. Even though sacrifices were offered and incense was burned and the priests ministered in the holy place every day of the year, there was only one day when only one Israelite could enter within the veil, and that was the high priest 
on the Day of Atonement, which occurs somewhere in the middle of September on the 10th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. On that day, the entire congregation of Israel would gather outside the court of the tabernacle. They would come near to the tent of meeting. And the high priest would stand by the brazen altar, the bronze altar of sacrifice, and there would be brought to him a bull and two goats. Now he would take the bull and he would slaughter it and he would catch, capture its blood in a dish. And then he would walk inside the tabernacle and he would walk up to the golden altar of incense and with a fire pan he would get some coals. And with those coals in the fire pan and the blood in the other hand, he would enter within the veil and he would pour incense upon the coals which would create this sweet smelling, thick, ethereal cloud that shadowed the presence of God. And then he would take the blood, the blood of the bull, and he would sprinkle the throne of grace seven times, thus making atonement, not for all the people, we're not there yet, making atonement for himself and for his household. Well, then he would exit, and he would go back out to the bronze altar, And they would slay the first of the goats, all of these animals being without spot and without blemish. And he would take the blood of the goat and he would enter and he would do exactly the same thing. Thus making atonement for all the sins of all the congregation of Israel gathered around. And after atonement was made, he would come back out and there would be the third goat, still standing beside the altar, still alive. And he would take his hands... And he would, he would present them and, and put them upon the head of the goat. And he would confess over this goat all of the sins of all the people. Thus symbolically imputing the guilt from himself and from all of them to this goat which was known as the scapegoat. And then a man who had been appointed would take the scapegoat and they would drive it out into the wilderness never to be seen again. Which was a lesson. I will remember I will be merciful to your iniquities and I will remember your sins no more. It's an object lesson, the whole thing. Now the significance of of this elaborate object lesson is probably clear to you. You're probably already connecting the dots. It pointed to a perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, and the perfect atonement to come in Jesus Christ. And we'll walk through that fulfillment in just a moment and see how Jesus takes every step along that way and fulfills it. But in verses 8 through 10, the author is pointing to another lesson beyond that which the tabernacle and the ritual of the Day of Atonement was meant to teach. It was a yearly object lesson. Look at verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. That the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Which is a symbol for the present time. Here's what he's saying. The very presence of this earthly tabernacle and the continual repetition of this ritual displayed to everyone that the way to God was not yet open and that atonement for sin was not yet finally made. For if the sacrifice of the bulls and of the goats had actually taken away their sin, those sacrifices would have have stopped. Because there's no more sin to atone for. And if the way to God were actually open, the separation being taken away, there would be no more tabernacle. 
Because this tabernacle stood in the center of the people and it just screamed out, you cannot approach me. I am separated from you. I am holy and you are unholy. And the only way to approach me is only vicariously through a high priest and only through blood. But none of you, none of the people of Israel is allowed before the throne of grace. You can't come to me. And it was a continual lesson to them year after year. I can't come. I can't come. I can't come. That's what he's saying in verses 8 and 9. If sin had finally been atoned for through this ritual and reconciliation finally achieved, then there would be no more separation. There would be no more veil. There would be no more tabernacle. There would be no more sacrifices. And the people could come boldly before the throne of grace with confidence. But the very presence of the tabernacle and the very continual repetition of the sacrifices said, not yet. No. So the tabernacle remained and the sacrifices continued, which was a sure sign of their insufficiency. So verse 9. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. They're not effective, which is why they got to keep being offered. Since... Here's why they're not effective. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And this is the way it was with the Old Covenant. This is a pretty good summary. A copy, a shadow, outward external signs which in themselves are useless for the cleansing of the conscience and the reconciling of sinners to God. They had value in that they pointed ahead to a glorious and ultimate atonement and reconciliation to come through a glorious and ultimate high priest to come. But divorced from that reality in and of themselves, they were useless. Incapable of remitting sin, of removing guilt, of making sinners holy, of cleansing their conscience. Don't eat this, eat that. Don't drink this, drink that. Don't go there, don't touch that. Clean in this way, offer in this way. Insufficient and ineffective. Because mark this down. Any religious ritual and any set of religious rules divorced from the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ is utterly incapable of making you clean before God. And that's what the Old Covenant is meant to display. It's meant to say, don't look to the Old Covenant, you look to the Covenant to come. And here comes Jesus. Verse 11. But Christ. These two words summarize the the message of 11 through 14 which declares the all-sufficiency of the new covenant ministry of Jesus. In Jesus, that time of reformation promised in verse 10 has come. And Jesus, our great high priest, has appeared to do what the priests of the old covenant could only copy. Verse 11, 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Do you see what he's doing? The author is casting the work of Jesus Christ in terms of the priestly work on the day of atonement. Now, we've already walked through the copy and the shadow, right? We've already walked through what the high priest of Old Covenant Israel would do on that one day every year. My question is now, and what verses 11 through 12 answer is, what happened when the real guy showed up? What happened when Christ appeared? What does the great and final day of atonement look like? Here's what took place. First, Christ appeared. Perfect God and perfect man. Uniquely and perfectly qualified to serve as the only mediator between a holy God and unholy people. Jesus appeared in the courtyard of the tabernacle of this world in order to represent his people on the day of days. Dressed in the high priestly robes of righteousness, bearing the names of the people upon his breast, the Holy One approached the altar. But where's the bull and where are the goats? He needs no bull to make sacrifice for himself because he has no sin. And he needs no goat to make sacrifice for the sins of the people because the blood of bulls and goats can in no way take away sin. No, the blood of sacrificial animals belonged to the copy and to the shadow and to the old and to the fading and to the passing away. They are not fitting for the new and everlasting. And that's why there is no goat. Bulls and goats cannot die for man. Only man can die for man. And only the sinless God-man can die for many men. So in the reality of the new covenant... Jesus is both high priest and sacrifice. And so on this final day of atonement, rather than slay the bull and rather than slay the goats, Jesus slayed himself. Laid himself down upon the altar of the cross in the courtyard of this world outside the gate. And there in the sight of the entire congregation, he was slain for the sins of his people, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Christ appeared. Secondly, he says, Christ entered. Having offered himself as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people upon the altar of the cross, the Lamb of God rose from the dead. And he got up from the altar. And he ascended into heaven and he entered into the great and more perfect tabernacle, one made without hands, that is to say, not of this creation, that is, the heavenly sanctuary above, and bearing the blood of the atonement, not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own perfect blood, he approached the mercy seat and he sprinkled the throne of grace. And then Jesus did something that no earthly high priest would ever dream of doing. He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ entered. Christ, or Christ appeared. Christ entered. And he did so once for all. Because this day of atonement 
It was final and it was decisive and it is never to be repeated. For our great high priest entered the holy place once for all, having obtained what? Eternal redemption. Not annual redemption. Eternal redemption. That's why he says it is finished. Everything about this event screams out sufficient, perfect, final, complete. The high priest, the better high priest, has brought the better blood into the better tabernacle to mediate a better covenant between God and his people. He has obtained eternal redemption. Then in verses 13 and 14, the author then moves to the effect of this new covenant blood. How is that eternal redemption obtained by Jesus 2,000 years ago applied to us? How, How does it affect us? For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, verse 14 says, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's, there's two old covenant rituals that are mentioned in verse 13. We've already talked at length about one. That's the day of atonement. That's the blood of goats and bulls. But there's a second one that he mentions, which is less, less familiar to us. It comes from Numbers 19. Under the old covenant, those who were ceremonially unclean through contact with a corpse. So you get what's going on here? They are unclean because they've been defiled by death. They couldn't come into the presence of God. They couldn't even stay in the congregation of the people. They were excluded from Israel. They had no fellowship with God. They had no fellowship with his people. They were defiled. And in order to cleanse them and in order to remove their defilement, the law stipulated that a red heifer was to be slain and burned in its entirety upon an altar outside of the camp, along with cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet thread. Then the ashes of the heifer were mixed with pure water, clean water, and this mixture was taken and it was sprinkled upon the defiled people. And the sprinkling of the ashes of the red heifer mixed in the cleansing water cleansed them ceremonially from their defilement. And they were able to come back into the camp. And the author is saying all of these things, they only affected external cleansing. It was only external fellowship that was restored because it was only external cleansing that was applied. But it teaches us something. If the ashes of the red heifer, the blood of bulls and goats, if all of these rituals together serve to cleanse externally and to remedy external separation and to bring an external and temporary reconciliation, then think how much more the blood of Jesus is going to cleanse us from defiled consciences by touching dead works. It's how much more, greater to the less. Now that we have the true and eternal covenant, the true and eternal blood, the true and eternal priest, the atonement from sin and the cleansing from defilement are true and eternal. The blood of Christ offered without blemish to God, 
through the eternal spirit does not cleanse the flesh, it cleanses the conscience. So now this contrast between the old and the new covenant are made so clear and the supremacy of the new over against the old. Look what he does here. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of Christ. Not the ministry of sinful priests, but the ministry of the Son of God through the eternal spirit. Not the external cleansing of the flesh from ritual defilement, but the sprinkling of or, or the, through the sprinkling of water, but the internal cleansing of the conscience from real defilement, from real guilt and real sin through the sprinkling of blood through the Spirit. Everything internal as opposed to external, perfect as opposed to weak, eternal as opposed to temporary. And the effect of this sprinkling is the achievement of what could never, ever be accomplished through Old Testament ritual or sacrifice. What does it achieve? Look down at the last part of verse 14. We're almost done. It achieves a clean conscience. Do you know what a treasure it is to have a clean conscience? Heard a guy say this week that You'll know it at one point in your life, and that's when you're about to die. What you wouldn't give at that moment for a conscience that is clean and not terror-stricken before the impending judgment of a holy God. It affects a clean conscience. I'm not talking about the kind of conscience of the unbeliever who is untroubled because he's suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and he's convinced himself that there's no God, there's no such thing as sin, there's no coming judgment, there's no wrath. I'm talking to man, about the man who knows that there's a God, knows that he is holy, knows that it's appointed for man once to die and then comes the judgment, knows that he's a sinner, but is unafraid because he also knows that he's clean. That's what's offered to you this morning. Clean before God and clean before the people of God. No longer given over to dead works. What are those? Dead works are whatever proceed forth from a dead heart. A heart that's dead to God. It manifests itself differently in different ways. For some, dead works encompass all manner of depraved living of the sort that's mentioned at the end of Romans 1. Those are the dead works of what we might call the sinners. That's not the only kind of dead works there are. The dead works of what I like to call the slaves. Just empty, empty religious rituals and activities performed not by grace and the power of the Spirit, but by works and self-effort, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps in the futile and vain and desperate effort to assuage God's wrath and make me acceptable in His sight. They're dead. You have blood of bulls and goats just like they did. It's called church attendance. God's going to save me because I came. It's called morality. God's going to save me because I've never killed anyone and I never slept around. Bulls and goats. And it will not make you clean. Nothing that you can do this morning will clean your conscience before God. 
only those whose conscience has been cleansed by blood, made alive in the Spirit, who are the sons of God, only they are able to truly serve the living God with living works from a living heart of faith. We're talking here about the essence of the new covenant and what makes it so radically different from the old covenant and what makes it so radically different from from every lifeless form of religion out there in the world. We're talking about life and joy and peace with God and freedom from guilt. We're talking about faith and, and sonship and the spirit and love manifesting itself in holiness and works of service. Those things only exist in the clean and free heart. So I ask you, is your conscience clean this morning? Because it can be. I I want you and me and us here at First Baptist Nix, I want us to know and to taste and to feel and to worship out of the joy of a clean conscience, one that can lay its head down on the pillow tonight and not be afraid to meet God. And one that can worship this morning and not say, I'm free, I'm free, and know that I'm really not free. I'm in bondage. Listen to me, beloved. I want you to experience the freedom from guilt that comes from knowing you are reconciled to God and he is reconciled to you. No longer are you standing outside the tent of meeting, watching from afar the ceaseless activity of priests as they minister on your behalf before God with worthless sacrifices that will not make you clean. The great high priest has come, He has sprinkled the mercy seat with his atoning blood and now the way into the holy place into God's very own presence is open. It is wide open to you. Therefore, the author is going to say in the next chapter, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has inaugurated for us through the veil, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Everything about the old tabernacle, the old covenant said, stay away, you cannot come, you cannot approach, we are separated, we are not reconciled, we are not friends. Everything about the new covenant says, come. Come, approach, have confidence, don't fear, get grace, receive mercy. We are friends, you are children, come to me. It's the glory of being called the children of God and living under the new covenant. But you can't have any of that until your conscience is clean. You can't serve God until it is. All you can offer to him are the dead works of slaves, dead Bible reading, dead church goings, dead charitable giving, dead, 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 dead morality, death. And you don't sleep any better. And you're not any less afraid. Like Lady Macbeth, right? After she convinced, convinced her husband to slaughter King Duncan. 
get the blood off my hands. Get it off. Get this spot away from me. And, and they thought she was crazy. She wasn't crazy. She was guilt-stricken. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You come here this morning guilt-stricken, and I'm offering you cleansing. It is free, and you can't do it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask Jesus to sprinkle you. Get the blood stains off of your hands. Get the filth out of your conscience. Ask Jesus to sprinkle you with his blood by his spirit. You ask him, believing that he is able and he is willing, for he has called you, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come, all who are dirty, and I will make you clean. You come to him, and you ask him to sprinkle you, and you do it now. Maybe it's for the first time for some of you. You've never been clean in your life. You don't know what it means to be free, and you don't know what it means to be joyful. You come, and you be free, and you be joyful this morning. But for many of you, you're just stained with the guilt and the filth and the struggle of the week. Why don't you come? Come and be clean. Let's bow together. I want you to ask yourself this. Am I clean? Do I hear the invitation draw near to the throne of grace with confidence? And you can't. You don't have confidence. you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Do you want to be clean? Confess your sin to Christ. Confess to him that you believe that his blood is all sufficient. This was not empty ritual that he went through. This was eternal redemption that he has obtained. And tell him you want it. Tell him you want to be clean. Tell him you're like that guy who was defiled by touching death. You've been knee deep in dead works all week long. And you feel yourself separated from the congregation of Israel and cast outside of the camp. Tell him you want to come back. He'll sprinkle you. With the blood, by the Spirit, he will sprinkle you and you will be clean. You ask him that now. Beloved of God, redeemed by Christ Jesus, you ask him that. And then I'm going to invite you in just a moment to stand and I'm going to invite you to sing out in freedom my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Do you want to be able to sing that? Go to Jesus. My Father, I pray for everyone here. I pray that you would do that. Send your spirit and sprinkle consciences. Make them clean. Set them free. 
Fill them with joy. Let them taste the joy and the goodness of the Lord that they may stand and sing about the freedom and the wellness of their soul. Do it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.